Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Hello and welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, we feature the return of guest Danny LaBelle. Danny is a comedian and is also the host and founder of Comical Radio, a terrestrial-based radio show out of New York City, ran from 2004 to 2012. It was also the first comedy podcast featuring hundreds of amazing comedians. This was an extremely influential show and basically inspired hundreds of other comics to follow in his step and start doing their own podcasts, but he was the first. Danny and his fiance Kylie left New York City in 2012, headed out to LA where he found a new podcast called Modern Day Philosophers. Danny interviews comedians and then they bring up a philosopher and talk about that philosophy in a modern day setting. It's very interesting. We'll play you a clip of the show featuring Jackie Mason. So let's get right into it. We got lots of great stories from Danny. Sit back and relax to another episode of Music Life Radio, this one entitled Modern Day Philosopher, Danny LaBelle. Welcome, Danny LaBelle, to Music Life Radio. Great to have you back on the program. We had you on the program originally in 2010 when you were living in New York City, host of Comical Radio. A lot's changed since then. Let's get right into it. What happened with Comical Radio? You shut the door in 2012. Can you talk about that? Uh, My lawyer has authorized me not to talk about (laughs) it. Yeah, I can talk about it. Comical Radio had a really good run. We went for many years, and as far as I know, we were the first podcast to officially interview, you know, comedians, especially on the scale that we did, uh, big comedians, and uh, get interviews like Chris Rock and George Carlin. And we were ahead of our time, and I think we kind of ended right before. Well, we got it. We 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 missed the big podcast boom. Um. And uh, it hit us, you know. We weren't, it was, for whatever reason, it wasn't meant to be. When everybody's podcast started popping up and there was a lot of heat about podcasting, we were already out of steam. So the timing wasn't quite right, but we did have a good run while we were, while we were going. And at one point at our height, we had 50,000 people tuning in. So, so that was, uh, you know, then other podcasts started up, uh, the Smodcast Network was one of the earlier ones I remember starting. And then, you know, Mark Marin and Jay Moore and all these guys started big podcasts. And, and uh, there weren't that many people tuning into podcasts early on. So they're all cutting from the same pie. And I remember seeing a lot of people posting up, oh, I used to listen. I saw on a forum, like, I used to listen to uh, Comical Radio before... I got into Jay Moore or whoever it was. 
uh, or Mark Maron. I don't remember. And then there was a bunch of people on that thread like, yeah, yeah, I did too. And I was like, oh, we're losing our audience, you know. Obviously, they're doing something that we weren't, weren't doing. And I know what it was. We'd lost steam. We weren't, we weren't on, we weren't. It's it's hard to get a whole team of people to work for free for a long time. <laughs> that's true, yeah. And uh, you know, and that's what we were doing essentially. We were treating it like a job, and we were all going in. We had a lot of hopes, and we were in our early twenties and to mid twenties, and we we were dreaming big for sure. But it didn't pan out quite as we'd hoped. Although there were a lot of great adventures that we had. You know, we did a lot of good stuff, and. We had some exciting times, and we had, you know, like I said, George Carlin come into the studio and many others, and we filmed a web series with Colin Quinn and Patrice O'Neill. I mean, we did some cool stuff. It wasn't all for nothing, but it was tough when it ended, you know? I felt lost, for sure. I, I felt like there were so many podcasts doing what we were doing that I didn't feel special anymore, and I was like, you know, when we started doing it, there were nobody... No other podcasts interviewing comedians, and all the comics used to come in, and they'd say, there's nothing like this out there for us. I mean, there's just morning radio, and this is cool. We get real. We talk. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's a, great form, you know, it's a great platform. And I knew we were onto something special. And my former co-host, Chris Iacono, used to be like, don't tell anybody, bro. Don't tell them about podcasting. You know, he wanted to keep it a secret. I was like, they're going to find out about podcasting. But at the time, no other comedians even knew about podcasting. He's like, we got the corner, we got the market cornered, bro. Just don't let anybody else know about podcasting. And, uh, you know, I remember he turned really bitter when, when all these other famous comedians started launching podcasts. And I was always kind of like, well, that's what's going to happen. I mean, we pioneer something and it's going to catch on. That's better than the alternative. If it didn't catch on, that would be really crappy, you know? Then we'd be in a in a dead medium. So Well, it's nice to be well, nice to be a pioneer too. I mean, I mean, I've seen on other podcasts that you definitely were an inspiration for uh, many other people, many comedians especially. Yeah, I remember hanging out with Mark Marin at the now uh no longer existent uh Comedy Club Comics and we were hanging out at the bar. And he was like, hey, I, I'm thinking about launching a podcast. I know that you know about them and that you do one, and can you tell me how to do it? And I, I remember telling him everything I knew, pretty much. And and he actually said to me, he's like, hey, would you want to get involved in this thing and, like, co-host it with me? And and you do, like, the technical work? And and I was like, no, I'm too busy with my own. And I, and I don't regret that at all. I mean, first of all, WTF wouldn't have been WTF if it wasn't done the way it was done, you know? Uh, Mark, Mark made that thing because it's Mark. It's an, it, me being involved in that would have been a disaster, and it probably would have gone nowhere. And I would have been annoyed that I was doing all this technical work, you know. Yeah, totally. But um, I, Mark doesn't even remember, I'm sure, because when I talked to him on his on WTF, he didn't bring it up, and I didn't bring it up, and I figured I don't think he even remembers that conversation. But. You know, I, I was on the phone today with uh, Fred Stoller, who's a great comedian, who's been on my podcast, and he was asking me how to, you know, stuff about launching a podcast too, all kinds of questions, and and so it still goes on. I, you know, all the big comedians still ask me about launching podcasts, and I still tell them everything I know, and I, I try to be helpful to everybody. It's, you know, that's that's, but now it's a different beast. I mean, now podcasting's no secret, you know. Yeah. <laughs> 
You're kind of like the uh, godfather of the comedy podcasting world. <laughs> for what it's worth, and it's not worth much, but for what it's worth, I am. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of podcasts these days. It's kind of like the San Francisco music scene being fragmented in a billion different genres and whatnot. Sure, I guess it is like that. You decided to move to L.A. What were your reasons for packing up and leaving New York City? We talked about comical radio ending a little bit. And I and I touched on the fact that I felt lost when it did. But I felt really, really lost. I mean, I didn't know what to do anymore. I had I was the guy, the comical radio guy. It's funny how much, you know, our identities are tied into what we do. You never really realize it, but I think when people get laid off of jobs or, or change careers, it must hit them because I was in a funk with stand up. I wasn't feeling it. I wasn't feeling inspired. I hardly was going out anymore in New York. It was a little bit of a rough patch for me. I mean, last time we talked, Harvey Picar died. Uh, and I think that was kind of the beginning of, like, the end of a chapter of my life. It was, you know, my heroes dying him and then, you know, and George Carlin and, and then Patrice O'Neill. And all these guys who I really looked up to... Uh, were, were dying, and I was like, it was just weird. I just felt like when Patrice O'Neill died, I felt like that was that was it. That's when I stopped going out to the clubs as much. I was, I was so aggressive about getting out there every night for a long time, and then Patrice, who always seemed kind of immortal, died, and I was at his funeral, which was uh, at this big church on the Upper West Side, and all these comedians got up and talked, uh, Kevin Hart and Colin Quinn and Dane Cook and all these guys got up and said their piece, and I just couldn't, they were all, uh, I guess they had all lost friends before, and it was, and they were in a different place than I was. I was, like, hysterical. I didn't want to talk to anybody there. I was, uh, I just wanted to get away from it all. I just wanted to get away from I was like, what is this, what, to what end, you know? Patrice O'Neill was, like, aiming for, and, I, you know, arguably he was a great comic, but I, he was it, are aiming to be one of the greats, you know? Which, to me, would have meant, like, a much bigger body of work and a much longer career, and uh, he would have gotten old as a comedian, and, you know, and now it's it's kind of weird to use Cosby as a reference, but I kind of always imagined him being, like, you know, without the, you know, without all the charges, but being like growing old as as a Cosby type comedian, like the old, I want to hear what the old Patrice O'Neill had to say. Okay, let's use George Carlin. You know how George Carlin, you saw him through all these phases in life, and then I think uh, you know the day that George Carlin died, Patrice and I were together. Patrice was on Comical Radio, and we had a long heart to heart after the show, and. It was just so weird when Patrice died because he was young and, you know, I just, I kind of saw him as like the next Carlin. I thought he was that great and uh, it broke my heart and it was, it was Patrice who was like the first comedian who was on a show with me in New York City at a, at Stand Up New York, my very first show and he, he was like, offensive and i and and uh, i didn't get him at all but he was like he was cool you know but back then i don't know if there was what to get he was still finding his way as well this is a long time ago but uh 
It was like that was like the the welcome to comedy. Here's this big black guy who's going to offend the whole crowd, and and you're going to love it, but you're not going to quite get it what he's what he's up to. And but but there's this whole world, this magical world of comedy, and it all exists here in New York. And then you know all the years that followed that of a decade of you know getting to know all these comedians and getting to know Patrice and becoming friends with him and writing jokes for him uh, for a show that never got picked up, but. Uh, I, I guess I really looked up to him a lot, and uh, the day he died, I felt like, you know, I was being dramatic, but I was like, comedy is dead, you know? And uh, I just didn't want to go out so much anymore. New York had kind of lost a lot of its magic for me. I was like, that's it. I don't, uh, I don't know what I'm doing here anymore. I'm not doing the podcast. I'm not feeling super motivated about stand-up. I don't even know what I want to talk about. All my jokes are stupid, you know. And uh, I'd been talking for a long time to Kylie, my now fiance, about moving to L.A. And, you know, one day she said, well, let's just do it. I don't want to hear you talking about it anymore. Let's just let's just do it. And I was like, what? <laughs> you, I just like to talk about it. You know? <laughs> but, um... Uh, we lived across the hall from the Blancos, who are his Ecuadorian gang, and uh, I had a real, like, interesting relationship with the main Blanco. We were friends, but he was still scary, and, you know, things were starting to get really rough over there. He was he was on a bunch of drugs, and it was getting unsafe in the building. He had some beef with another gang. Um, there, was a, there was a bunch of threats. Everyone's like, if anyone comes by... They're like, don't let anyone into the building, you know. Um, right after we left, a few days after we left, there was a drive-by, and they shot, they shot the building. And, uh, you know, probably nothing would have happened to me, but there were bullet holes in the door that I went back. When I was back in Brooklyn, I went and saw them for myself, and they were in the hole, bullet holes into the tiles in the, in the hallway. Wow. <laughs> so it was time to leave. It was time to leave, and we... We first looked into uh, moving in New York, and it's so expensive just to move in New York, and we weren't excited about any of our options there, and uh, Kylie said we should move to L.A., and I said, I don't know, and I don't know if we're ready, and we didn't have much money, and really not much money at all, and we took uh, our money, and we split it in half, and half of it we used to rent a house on a lake in Florida for a month. And I said, let's go to Florida. And uh, we threw the, the dogs in the car. We left without telling anybody in the middle of the night. All my friends were like, you didn't say goodbye. We didn't have a goodbye party. We just, we actually fled New York. We, we escaped. And uh, we, we went around to all these uh, bodegas. We got all these cardboard boxes from them, and we packed as much stuff as we could into the uh, from our apartment in there, and then we rented the place out. That's how I found out about the shooting. The guy who we rented it to told me, and we said, look, you know, we explained the situation. Their neighbors are, it's a rough situation, the neighbors and everything. But in New York, people will live anywhere. They're like, I don't care. I'll, I'm living here. Yeah. Yeah, the guy who rented it from us uh, said that he walked out into the hallway, and bullets were flying by, and he went back, like, into the room. And uh, and he still stayed after that. He was like, "No, nah, I'm not leaving." <laughs> so that's New York. So yeah, we fled in the night, put the place up for rent on Craigslist, rented it out, 
had uh, left the key with somebody. They let them in, and we went to Florida. We drove to Florida. We found this house on Craigslist and rented it on the lake, and we lived there for a month while we thought about Because my, my feeling was going from New York to L.A., I always... I never liked L.A. I'm actually starting to like it now, but I never liked L.A., and I always felt like it would be such a step down from New York because New York brainwashes you into thinking it's, like, the greatest place in the world, and if you leave it, you're an idiot, and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, let's go somewhere crappy like Florida so that L.A. seems like a big step up. <laughs> you know? Where where in Florida were you? We were in St. Cloud. Okay, I'm not sure. Where is that close to? It was close to the head of the KKK's house. I know that. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's close to kissing me. It's not too far from Disney, but um, it's like this little uh, redneck town. It's pretty charming. We liked it. Uh, there's a Walmart, and there's a bunch of restaurants that sold alligator and turtle and frog and all that kind of stuff. And and we lived there, and we became old people for a month. It happened very quickly. Uh, all we did was watch Raymond when it would come on at like 7 p.m. And we'd go mini-golfing. We'd catch early bird specials and matinee movies. And uh, it, was re- it was really like retiring. And then we came out to L.A. We drove uh, down the 10 highway from Florida to L.A., making stops in New Mexico and in Texas. But I don't remember where in Texas we stopped. And in New Orleans. And uh, we moved, we found an Airbnb in North Hollywood, and we had exactly enough for one month there, and we took it from there, and and uh, now we live near Culver City. So that's the whole story. Now, did you kind of have to just restart your lives over there, as far as jobs go, or were you able to get stand-up gigs and start paying the rent in the new place fairly quick? No, I got a job out here. Producing a podcast of all things. You know, I was telling you how all comedians are coming to me and saying, I want to start a podcast. Well, there you go. There's some good life skills you have. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that happened. A comedian who uh, I was uh, touring with at the time, uh, Ralphie May, asked me to produce his podcast, and I did that for a year. And uh, that helped us kind of get on our feet in L.A. And, you know, I'll always be grateful to him for that, so... So you've eventually you were able to start a new podcast, Modern Day Philosophers, and now you t- you take a whole different spin. I don't think anybody's done this, uh, and I like the idea a lot. When I was first checking it out, I thought, oh "My God, this guy must be a genius. He's he's got co- comedians paired up with you know different philosophers that are going to talk all about all this philosophy." And it was a little bit intimidating <laughs> until I started listening to the episodes. Then I understood what it was really about. Talk about this podcast. Like I said, I, I came when I left New York. I was, I think a lot of people leave New York like when they're at the top of their game in New York, and they're like, "I'm ready for L.A." But when I left New York, I was just done. I was lost, and I came from you know New York to Florida to here to L.A., and I, I didn't know who I was anymore, what I was, and I took this job producing a podcast, which I never would have done for. All those years before, though, I was asked many times. I just didn't want to be a producer. I just always wanted to be the talent. I didn't want to. I didn't want to do that thing. But I didn't. I didn't know what I wanted anymore. And I. I did this pr- producing job, and I gave it my best, and I did pretty well. I think. It just. Uh, it wasn't. It ultimately wasn't for me to produce. 
that's the best way to explain it. But I got to a point where I wanted to be creative again on my own and do my own thing. And I started doing modern day philosophers. And at this point, as many people when they're feeling lost might do, I started reading philosophy at that point in my life. And I was like, I couldn't make heads or tails of it because I'm not an academic guy, you know? I think we all want to be like a genius on some level, but some of us just aren't. I'm just, hey, I'm just a regular guy <laughs> from 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 Queens, New York, you know? <laughs> it's, it's true. Uh, and uh, I was like, man, this thing that always stuck with me was the day that George Carlin died. Jackie Mason called me up and he... He said he was more than he was more than just a comedian. He was a modern day philosopher, and uh, just the fact that Jackie held this idea of a philosopher in such high prestige over a comedian, even uh, I was like, it just something that I kept coming back to that thought that comedians and philosophers are pre are related. You know, we are philosophizing. Maybe we're just idiots philosophizing instead of, you know, highly academic people. Maybe some of us are highly academic. I don't know. But who cares? Who cares about the details of that? The point is that we're philosophizing. And um, I started to uh, think about Patrice O'Neill again. And what I love about him is that he was kind of up there sharing his philosophies in life. And so the original idea for the show was because I literally was struggling to get through Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, or maybe it's too perplexed. I was trying to read this book, and I thought, I need uh, I need a tutor. Uh, maybe I'll go on Craigslist and post, does anyone want to tutor me in philosophy? Because that's where I felt that I was at. And uh, and then I was like, I don't want no money for a tutor. I don't, wanna, I don't want some stranger coming over anyway. I wish I just had a friend that, I could, that would have th this interest with me. And I went back to this idea that Jackie said comedians are, you know, George Carlin's a modern-day philosopher. And I was like, comedians should be interested in this. Like, I'm interested in this, you know. Maybe we'd like to know a little bit about if comedians really did evolve from philosophers, maybe we should go back and look at where we came from. So I went to approach a friend of mine to see if he wanted to study some philosophy with me. And, uh, and he was like, you mean for a show? And I was like, yeah, yeah, for for show, of course. Uh, I was just like, oh, yeah, of course comedians don't want to do anything unless you put a microphone in front of them. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, yeah, for a show. And I was like, I guess I got to make a show. And uh, so I made the show. I made the I said, you know what, better than have them come in. Because my original idea was to sit with a friend and try and get through this one book. I was like, let me see about pairing each comedian with a philosopher that they have something in common with. And ultimately, extracting the philosophy of the comedian by using the philosopher, the ancient philosopher's ideas, to open up the comedian to theirs, you know? So that was the idea. Yeah, that idea evolved as the show evolved. I wasn't quite sure what it was at first, but I, I posted up on Facebook, does anybody know anything about philosophers? Because I needed someone who could tell me who to pair with who. And uh, my old friend Alex Fasella, who I've uh, worked with in the past before, turns out he has a degree in philosophy, and he loved the idea, and, and he said, sure, I'll find you philosophers, and we've been going strong at it ever since. Yeah, so once I started listening, now I really understood what was going on, and uh, it's actually really fascinating, and I like the way that you bring in these comedians, like Todd Berry was one of the ones I listened to, 
And uh, he didn't necessarily know anything about the philosophy you were talking about at the time. I think it was Francis uh, Bacon, maybe. Right, it was. Yeah, and uh, it really spawned a good, interesting conversation. And uh, I, th- I thought it was very cool. Thanks, yeah. I mean, uh, um, Todd, Todd was, uh, what sticks with me about that was talking about renting and owning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, they all, I don't know, something sticks with me from all of them. When I when I talked to Todd, it was all about like because uh, there's this concept. I always think about like who's really owning anything. Yeah. No, but nobody. We're all really renting in life, you know. Just some people have a slip that says this is yours, but nobody really owns, you know. So what? It goes to your kids, and then what? If it if it really worked that way, we'd all have so much because <laughs> think of all the generations that would have handed us down stuff. We'd all be born rich. We'd all yeah. be born with so much property and so much stuff because everybody owned and it got passed on and passed on and we're all like, it doesn't really work out like that. It, no. Uh, it's, it's weird how, you you know, after many years of people evolving and surviving and, and, uh, and thriving, you kind of, most of us just start off with a blank slate and we're like, all right, I guess I have to make it all over again. So... All that work of the people that came before you, it only really amounts to the fact that you have genes, right? You know, you have their genes, but you don't have, you know, there are people who are an exception. They're born into money, but not many of us. You'd think that we're all born into a ton of money or something. You don't really own anything. You don't own anything. All you have is yourself and your soul, and you don't even have your body because that, that, that goes into the earth. So when I talked to Todd and we dis- we discussed a little bit, you know, the fact that he he's never he's always renting apartments he doesn't own and renting versus owning that that really struck a chord with me. And, but they're all pretty interesting. I mean, Gilbert Godfrey was on the show this week. Yeah, we talked about anxiety. That's what stuck with me from that and uh, and managing anxiety. And I think it's cool because there's a little bit of there's a little bit of. Uh, there's a little bit of a gem in each one of these episodes that uh, you could take with you. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the episode is nonsense, and a lot of it is just two comedians trying to be funny sometimes, and or me like uh, you know meeting somebody cool and trying to like uh, get them get them excited about the show or what I don't know. But there is a little bit of something in every one of these I think that you could take away and. Uh, and it's and it's positive, so I like that, you know. Even the one with Marty Allen, uh, he didn't really want to do the philosophy part, but he was still a very interesting guest to have. <laughs> I thing that stuck with me about Marty Allen was about you know this idea of being uh, of not living to die. You yeah. know, that's what I got out of that. Is the guy has a ten year plan and he's like ninety, what ninety three <laughs> or ninety four? Yeah. And I, I was thinking to myself like. After the show, he was telling me, like, oh, I don't really like getting into that stuff too much, you know. Uh, I don't, you know, I try to keep a showbiz, you know, thing. I don't remember exactly how he put it, but he's like, you know, I don't want it getting out there. And I was thinking to myself, is he worried about, like, saying the wrong thing? He's 94. Who cares, right? (laughs) At that point, yeah, why not? Who cares? But but then I realized it's because he cares that he's still going. (laughs) Exactly. It's, it's 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 because of the fact that he still thinks it's whatever he says is going to come back to him, or he's very careful about what he publicly says. 
it's because that he doesn't he's not he's not planning on dying anytime soon therefore he lives because he because of that attitude because of that that kind of uh way of you know having a 10-year plan at 94 years old the guy has he's very alive he's you know he's he's out there he's i worked in an old age home you know there are people in their 50s who act like you know they're ready to die yeah here's a guy who's 94 who is just as young and and spry and you hear it in the episode he's a very happy guy and He's still outperforming and doing what he loves, and he's got a, a beautiful wife who's younger than him, but you know, loves him very much and and keeps him young. and And uh, I was uh, I took a lot away from that one. Yeah, I mean, it's been a great fifth season. We had uh, Colin Quinn, who was uh, phenomenal. I'll tell you, my favorite ones from the season were Colin Quinn, Susie Essman, Jared Logan, and uh, Jordan Ferber. Uh, who is episode 58, but that one's a little heavy. That one is about C.S. Lewis on grief, and uh, Jordan lost his brother, who was his only sibling, 12 years ago, and he runs a grief support group now for people who lost siblings, and we really kind of explore his grief, and we talk about grief, and we explore uh, C.S. Lewis's writings on grief and how they hit Jordan and what he thought, you know, was relatable to him, and... Uh, it's a heavy episode. I also released it on Holocaust Remembrance Day. So, if you, if if you want, if it wasn't heavy to begin with, uh, there's a Holocaust intro to it. So, so that one is uh, that one got a lot of mixed reviews. People loved it and were moved by it, and some people were like, "Oh man, that's too heavy for a comedy podcast." Man, I don't know. You lost me on that one. So it was a big divide from the listeners. I mean, I got a lot of mail, and it was so split. Nobody was like, "Eh." <laughs> so it was a divisive but powerful episode, you know? Yeah, it's a great show. I'm going to continue uh, downloading the episodes and checking them out, the back catalog especially. So thanks. That's uh, awesome that you're still doing stuff. Well, I'll drop this on your show. And you'll hear it here first. All right. The episode, the season six, the first episode of season six will have the man who inspired the whole show, Jackie Mason. Oh, cool. So uh, he will be the first guest of season six. Oh, that's going to be great. The reason I was thinking about you is I was been binge listening to the Risk podcast, and you've done several stories on there. And one of them was uh, about you waiting in the unemployment line in L.A., and you started to do some improvisational, I guess, jazz clarinet or something with, with your uh, with your voice, <clears throat> and yeah. uh, that was an awesome story. Do you have any other music-related stories you'd love to tell? I probably do. You know, I started doing that clarinet in New York in the subway. Yeah. And I was doing it for money, and uh, it was good. I made decent money off it, but I, I'd run out of steam after half an hour. I couldn't keep doing it for more than a half hour without losing my voice. So I'd make 15 bucks in half an hour, but then I was that was it. So I'd like to think I make I could have made thirty bucks an hour by that logic, but I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't do the full hour. Um, but the best thing was one time I was in the subway, and I had like a little pig nose amp and a microphone. Yeah, I'm I'm going you know. You know I'm I'm at it right. Yeah. And uh, this cop comes over, and uh, he goes, um, excuse me, 
And he said, yeah. He goes, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what what exactly that is that you're doing. <laughs> He goes, but I'm I'm pre- I'm pretty sure you you're not you can't do that <laughs> without with with without without a permit. And I go, I go. You're you're pretty sure. And the guy just kind of like he just throws his hands up and and he's just like, oh oh, it's tough to be a cop in New York. This you know I, you think you've seen it all. And, and he just like so baffled. And I go, so you, if you think. I can't do it. That's not the same as I can't do it. And the guy just is like, yeah, I don't know. And he just like walked away. <laughs> like, I can't deal with this now. It was just too much for him. A guy doing, uh, you know, clarinet noises or trumpet noises, whatever they sound like. To, to, you know, that's, that's just, you know, homeless man probably shitting himself uh, <laughs> on the tracks you know two yeah. two feet away but that's that you know better look into that i wonder <laughs> if, i wonder if he went back to the office and googled it on their computer <laughs> yeah i got such a kick out of the fact that he um that was just too much for him like you know new york's a rough place i seen it all but nothing was quite as disturbing as this heavy guy doing a mouth trumpet on the subway <laughs> on the platform. Yep. I don't know. So um other than that, I don't know about music stories. I mean I love music. Uh I mentioned that uh we stopped in New Orleans on the way to Florida. I mean on the way from Florida to Los Angeles. And I went and visited a bunch of great jazz musicians, uh homes and uh and where they used to play, and I went to Louis Armstrong Park, and I got a picture with the Sidney Bechet uh, bust that's there in the, it's the exact replica of the one in Paris. Um, I'm a big fan of Bechet, and uh, so that was meaningful to me, doing the jazz thing, and, you know, going to Preservation Jazz Hall, and seeing a show there, and, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of jazziness going on, and you know, it's not really cool. I missed the boat on being cool with jazz by probably about 60 years. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, I, I one of the cool things since I've lived in L.A. was I had Carl Reiner on the podcast. And uh, and this is a musical story. Because uh, in the, in the um, episode, I sang him an Irish song. And after the episode, I got a call from him two days later telling me he was still thinking about that Irish song and he was blown away by the podcast and he couldn't stop thinking about the Maimonides quotes that I brought. And he's like, Mel's got to meet you. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah. He's like, do you want to have dinner with me and Mel? I'm like, Mel Brooks? Yeah. Oh, okay. Let me take a look at my schedule. I rattled, <laughs> rattled around a piece of paper that was in front of me in the car. And I said, oh, it looks like uh, I am free to have dinner with you and Mel Brooks uh, anytime, anytime <laughs> at all. So he laughed, and he goes, okay, well, let me talk to Mel and find out his schedule, and and, uh, and we'll, we'll work it out. And sure enough, I got a call, and I got invited over to Carl's house for dinner with Mel Brooks. And uh, Mel uh, warmed up to me, 
after about 20 minutes when we started talking jazz and I knew all the jazz guys that he grew up with and I and I blew him away with my knowledge of jazz and and it was this funny moment because um, we were discussing Artie Shaw. Artie Shaw was another uh, great jazz clarinetist uh, who lived uh, from the early 1900s. He, I think he passed away not too long ago, maybe uh, early 2000s. But um, Artie Shaw was uh, known for having well, amongst many things that he was known for, he was known for having many divorces, many wives. And um, I now I can't remember the amount, but I think it was uh, I think it was uh, six. Uh, no, eight. He had eight wives. And Mel said it was six. And I said no, it was it was eight. And Mel said uh, he said. You're gonna tell me, you're gonna tell me that I don't know about Artie Shaw. You're gonna tell me I don't know about Artie Shaw's, you know, you know. <laughs> he goes, I know Artie, I know him. He says, you don't know better than I do. I, uh, he says, he was married six times. I said, I, I said, with all respect, Mr. Brooks, I, 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 I'm pretty sure, and I, well, I'm not 100% positive, because even right now my memory is not so great for this, but I said, I, 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 I can't put money on it, but I, Something's telling me that he was married eight times, and uh, and I I think uh, I said I think he was he had six divorces, but I think he was married eight times. And Mel's like, what kind of man has six divorces? I said there was something about you know the marriages, you know, or maybe annulled or something. And but I, I he was married eight times. And he goes he goes no you know what. Mel thought it was five times, and I said I think he was divorced six times, but married eight times. And he goes, no, he was he only was married five times. It was anyway. The whole time we're going back and forth, and then there was another guy there who was uh, Carl's publisher, and he said, uh, let me let me look it up. And he pulled up uh, on his phone, Wikipedia, and he says, uh, Mel, Artie Shaw was married eight times. Uh, two of them were annulled. It says it right here on Wikipedia, and they ended. And then the other ones ended in divorce. And there was like this silence at the table for a minute. He goes, the kid knows his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm like an amateur jazz historian. I, you know, very amateur, but I, 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 you know, geek out on all these old jazz guys. So after that, we started talking about all kinds of stuff, big band stuff and Benny Goodman and... Um, uh, I, who did we talk about besides that? Um, I should know on Music Life Radio. I remember we got into Buddy DeFranco, and he was like, "Can you do any Buddy DeFranco songs on the air clarinet?" Because <laughs> I, I told him so. I, I did it because he, he's like, "Nobody knows Buddy DeFranco." Uh, and uh, and then you know we talked about Django Reinhardt. We talked about uh, Johnny Dodds and Jimmy Noon and. All these old, you know, I, all these great jazz clarinet players, and um, and I'd also read a book by Mez Mesro called "Rally the Blues," which is a really good jazz book. And I was telling him stuff from that book, and Mez Mez was like, considered uh, not such a great jazz player, but uh, he got to play with like all these great guys like Bechet, and he had this really cool memoir that not too many people have read. So. 
and I and then I want to make a movie out of it someday or something. So they, you know, we were talking about that, and I was talking about you know I I had written up a screenplay that was I'll never show anybody because it's not good, but it was like <laughs> a a Bechet, the Bechet story and um uh so yeah I I, I I'm really into all that stuff so. When it comes to music, you know, uh, I, I, I get I, I geek out a lot on jazz. Yeah, that's awesome. Everybody's got some kind of musical story to tell. You've also been active in some other storytelling. I know I heard you t- uh, do your rooster story on uh, This American Life. Do you have any uh, more upcoming episodes on uh, that program at all? Or have you been doing any work with them, those guys? No, not really. Uh, I would love to, but... They haven't expressed any interest anymore. And after I did it, they were like, we want to do another story with you. And then uh, as many things things go in show business, you know, uh, they just don't happen. You know, I, I submitted some story ideas. You know, first they got back right away. Then they didn't get back so much right away. And then they just didn't get back. So whatever. Yeah, that's uh, probably a pretty complex operation, too. Yeah, but you know the kind of cool thing about that story is it's taken on a whole nother life. Uh, I got asked to do a TEDx in Phoenix, and they they had heard that story. And it's like three years ago now. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and they're like, uh, "Hey, we 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 got the This American Life app, and we we're binge listening to it, and we came across your story. We thought it'd be great for TED. Do you want to? You ever consider doing like a TED Talk type of thing?" And I said. Uh, no, I didn't really think it would fit. And they said, uh, well, you know, it's not generally what we do, but it might be nice to break things up with that. So I said, sure, I'll do it. And then uh, this director reached out to me and uh, wanted to make a, f- a short film out of it, which I don't know that I'm going to do. I'm not sure what's going on with that because there's a lot of legality involved. in. You don't want to bring in the Blancos? <laughs> no, no, it's not that. It's just once you option your story to someone and you know it puts a strangle on you doing it and all kinds of stuff like that so i'm not sure i'm gonna do that but uh but it's cool that they want to do it and uh i don't know what'll happen with that but then i got another email um some people want to fly me out to oxford england to tell the story at a convention of anthropologists and archaeologists who are studying the relationships between humans and chickens over time and and uh and the migration of chickens as it's been brought around because chickens can't might go anywhere on their own human beings move the chickens around the globe and that's by tracking when chickens show up in certain cultures we can understand a lot about humanity and about the, the exploration of the world and Anyway, they thought it might be kind of nice again to break it up with a funny chicken story, and so they're they've invited me to come out there in November. I'm going out to uh, to England to tell this chicken story there. So, you know, you never know what's gonna hit. Yeah, and, that's. I mean, and then nobody knows less than I do what's gonna hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I started a, a philosophy podcast. Not the hippest thing to do in the world, you know. I'm telling you, I'm a little bit like uh, between the jazz and the philosophy. I think I'm I might be like the hippest guy in 1950. But <laughs> you know, well, you're continuing to get your presence out there, and things are starting to happen. I think uh, you know, 
That's very cool. I impressed exactly the people who might be impressed with what I, my <laughs> knowledge, 80-year-old men. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> well, who knows? There might be a resurgence for jazz all of a sudden. Yeah, you that, never that know. Couldn't be, couldn't be a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 uh, I kind of wish that I could be like a hip-hop expert, and, and then I'd kind of be with the times or something, but... <laughs> You know, I love hip-hop, but it, I'm not passionate about it in the way that I am about jazz. So let's talk about your engagement. Your uh, longtime girlfriend, Kylie Wakefield. Do you have a date set, and where are you going to do the wedding? I'm uh, getting married in uh, Malibu, which sounds pretty fancy. And it is pretty fancy, but it's actually, it actually was a lot cheaper than getting married locally in Los Angeles because of the venue. And uh, it's on the beach, so that's pretty cool. What are your uh, honeymoon plans, and what's the date? Do you have on set? The date is coming up. It's July 30th. Oh, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. Uh, so that's uh, pretty soon, and uh, I do not have honeymoon plans. But like I said, we're going to England for this chicken talk, so we'll probably like uh, turn that into something, you know? What are your websites? Where can people go to check out Modern Day Philosophers, and what else is going on with uh, you? Well, I put a lot of time and effort into Modern Day Philosophers these days, so that's good. And people seem to really like it. Um, and that's moderndayphilosophers.net. Uh, I am doing stand-up again in L.A. Not that I ever stopped, but I did cool down for a minute there. It's only, you know, it's only normal. Otherwise, you know, you have to be delusional to do it for this long and not hit and not cool down for a little while and regroup, you know. So that's how I see it. I'm talking about more personal stuff on stage and kind of having a new excitement about it that I didn't have before. I've got a whole lot more material. I'm ready to record another album, which I plan to do with Stand Up Records, StandUpRecords.com. That's another website where you could get my first album, which is uh, called Some Kind of Comedian. And that came out since our last talk, too. That's it. And then there's twitter.com slash Danny Lobel. There's also just twitter.com if you're not that specific about who you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah, I just really, you know, I, I, I would love if people check out Modern Day Philosophers. I'll tell you, if we have time, I'll tell you some of my favorite episodes. Yeah, let's do it. Um, Shelly Berman, another old, another old-time comedian. Uh, and we talked about Henry David Thoreau. And uh, we talked about Shelley uh, losing his son many years ago and and uh, how he's dealt with tragedy. And we talk about nature and poetry, and it's a, it's a nice talk. Uh, Bill Burr was a great one. We talked about Adam Smith and the philosophy of banking. And Bill talked a lot about managing money and, you know, as he gets more money, how to hold on to it, and advice that his brother gave him on, on how to hold on to your money, and basically how all bankers are crooks. Uh, Lewis Black and I discussed William James, and that was about psychics, uh, and Lewis believes in them, and he had an experience with the psychic, and we, we, we talked about that. Um, Artie Lang, I talked about Arthur Schopenhauer, and Schopenhauer wrote some stuff on suicide, and Artie tried to commit suicide, so that was an interesting talk. Uh, Matty Goldberg, who's a longtime friend of mine and I, we talked about Epicurus and 
And we talked about Maddie had a brain tumor and he survived it and and got a whole new lease on life. And it was an inspiring and and good talk about mortality and all kinds of interesting stuff like that. I'm trying to think what else. Todd Glass, we talked about John Locke and identity. And Todd had lived with this fake identity, you know, not fake, but, you know, he, he was gay for many years. He didn't tell anybody. And uh, then he came out of the closet and wrote a book about it. And uh, we talked a lot about, you know, identity things. John Locke. So that was a good one. Uh, Melissa Villasenor and Wasley Kandinsky. When we talk about love. That's a good one. Man, I really am passionate about the show. Because as I'm looking at this list, uh, there's a lot of them I want people to hear. Oh, man, Shecky Green, another great old-timer. And Pascal, and we talk about Pascal's wager. And Shecky used to have a huge gambling problem. And we talk about his life in, in early days of Vegas. Yeah, well, that's a lot of heavy hitters in the comedy world and some pretty serious topics. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think I'm doing my best podcasting work right now. I don't know. I'm I'm looking for funding. If anybody out there in the universe hears this and they want to fund a web series, I wrote one, and uh, I think it's pretty excellent, and I want to make it. Where is your plug for the web series? Is that on... Uh... No, I've never mentioned it before. I'm mentioning it now for the first time, but I'm going to start also asking my listeners on the show if they want to, you know, and I'm going to do a Kickstarter or something, too, but, I, I you know, I've, I've been working hard on it, and it's uh, I think it's really great. Well, very cool. We'll we'll put links back to the websites, and uh, so people can go back there. And I know you've got a donate button on your on your website as well for people looking to help out. It's true. Um, and season one is not available online anymore. I mean, it is online, but it's not on the um, podcast feed. You got to go to connectpal.com slash modern day philosophers, and then it's four ninety nine a month, and you can download them all and end it whenever you want but uh if people want to start from the beginning of uh of the podcast all those episodes are up there on connect pal oh, but cool. there's you know there's 48 free ones also so all the ones i mentioned are available so uh man all right thanks dan this has been this has been fun please uh tell everybody out there tell everyone you meet even in the grocery shop tell them to check out modern day philosophers tell them i'm i'm still hoping for a, a different relative success Will do, and it's a great program, so I'll be letting people know. It's uh, great work you're doing. Yeah, thanks, man. It's always great to talk to you. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Always great to talk to Danny LaBelle. We're going to play a sample of his podcast, Modern Day Philosophers, featuring Jackie Mason. Now, I have done some edits just to shrink it down to give you a snapshot of what it's like. Normally, Danny will do an interview segment, followed by a discussion with the philosopher of the, that program. The show's usually about 60 minutes. I've shrunken it down to 12 minutes, but it gives you a good feel for what it is. And of course, then go out to his website, moderndayphilosophers.com, and you can get the full version there and all the other episodes, obviously. It's a great program. Uh, check it out. And welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. 
I'm sitting here at the Times Square Diner with a man who's not only probably responsible for this show, but also probably responsible for this guy's career. I, uh, I give you a, a tremendous amount of credit. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that your career developed because of me. I'm proud that I had such a great influence on you. I thought that if I gave you, if you were influenced by me, by now, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't try to get even with me by having me wait for nothing. <laughs> As if this is all I got out of all my influence for you, and this is how you express your appreciation by giving me a job to wait for nothing for an hour. Yeah, you really should. And if that's the case, if that's what I accomplished, I wish I'd never met you in the first place. You should have mentored somebody else. If I meet another guy like you, I'll be wiped out altogether. <laughs> How many guys like you do you think I could afford? To <laughs> so do you remember Do you remember years ago, all the times we hung out together? I remember. I'm sorry to tell you that I do remember. <laughs> <laughs> and when I see a guy this size, I don't start an argument. I think if he wants to talk, I better answer him. That's why I wound up doing this interview. You think I'm happy to do this? But I saw you standing in front of me and I said, you're doing the interview. I said, it's up to you. <laughs> I missed this. If I gained weight and I was a little healthier, you could bet your life I, you wouldn't see me here. <laughs> I really miss I really miss all those times hanging out with you at the Aubon Pan. There was always an interesting group of people, professors, uh, businessmen, yeah. Policemen. Yeah. And it, people are enforcing the law. People are looking for me. People are look, trying to catch me who haven't caught me yet. But I managed to continue to work it out. Because the truth of the matter is that most people who think they're celebrities think they're too important to talk to the average person. But it's only the average person that you learn everything about life from. The average person has a point of view that's in more, much more independent and free thinking and more original and creative than the, average, than the average philosopher, than the average professor. Professor only knows what he was taught and he's always repeating what he read in the book. In show business, I feel that's especially true. I feel like everybody is, uh, is just kind of copying whatever the other people say. And if you don't get out of that bubble, you just wind up repeating and regurgitating the same thoughts, ideas, and values. Right. It's an amazing thing how you could repeat what I said, you put it in your own words, and then you feel like you accomplished something. <laughs> <laughs> he just repeated what I said. But and he, and he, he repeats it like, like I wasn't talking English. And he had to repeat it so that he could explain to people what I was talking about. Right. For your information, I was also talking English. I know it was too much of an accent for you to realize it. Um, what I've, one so thing that I needed an interpreter. What did you say? One thing that's always struck me about you, but to, to the effect of what you're talking about, is that I always feel when I'm with you that I'm, I'm hanging out with not just a comedian, but a detective. You're always at, you ask, where'd you come from? How'd you get here? You, and and that's, I think that's probably what makes you so sharp about, in, in terms of comedically, is that you're very, very detail attentive. Not so much that I've detailed as, as much as I am curious. I'm always curious to understand and appreciate what the other person's life, what the other person's life is about. How do you go through their life and how do, how do you experience it? And what's so different about one individual from another? It's amazing how people are all the same, but they're not the same 
to the extent that you can't see the difference between one person and another. Mm-hmm. Because everybody is so involved in his own life that he's experiencing things in his own terms, in his own way, that the other person would never feel or appreciate. Everybody in his own way is living his own life. And, it, and, and if you look into it, you'll always find that it's different in some peculiar ways that's, that's true only unto himself. There's still a distinguishing factor somehow between every person you meet if you look deeply enough into it. If you're curious enough about it, you'll find that each person has certain quirks and weird ways of thinking and strange qualities in his behavior. Somehow something that differentiates him from other people. That makes each person an individual. Just like there's no two faces that are exactly the same, mm-hmm. there's no two minds that are the same. And there's no two lives that are really the same. Okay. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift gears completely and go into the philosophy now because I, I've uh, I've taken a lot of time talking to you because I can't get enough of you. That's no, the truth of it. That's good. You can go into the philosophy now. So the philosopher that Alex picked out for you is uh, Martin Luther, who I know a little bit about because he started Protestantism. Right. And he was an anti-Semite. I know that. Right. He was born in Germany. He lived from November 10th, 1483 till February 18th, 1546. He was a German friar, a priest, a professor of theology. He was a seminal figure in the Protestant Reformation. He was initially an Augustinian friar. Luther came to reject several teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. He strongly disputed the claim that freedom from God's punishment for sin could be purchased with money. He confronted the indulgent salesman, Jonathan Tezel, a Dominion friar, with his 95 thesis in 1517. His refusal to retract all of his writings at the demand of Pope Leo at the Diet of Worms in 1521 resulted in his excommunication by the Pope and condemnation as an outlaw by the Emperor. The Catholic Church adopted the idea that goodness in your heart is not enough, and they started asking people to perform charity. It was corrupted into lay people giving the church money to save their souls, and Luther believed strongly in the doctrine of justification, meaning that God could forgive a sinner based on faith alone. By surrendering to faith, we acknowledge that God can forgive, making redemption an internal process. He further argued that human righteousness comes from God's righteousness put on us. Therefore, faith and prayer are the only way to properly make decisions, and human judgment and rules are flawed, but surrender to God is default perfect and that's why he specifically left the church and I guess it was a lot to do with money corruption but I don't th- I don't know that Protestant Protestantism is that, is that much better or Lutheranism they all take money isn't that part of it what was he trying to say that that uh, that money corrupts he was saying that the church was corrupted by money and that the church was telling people at the time that the only way you're going to your soul is going to be absolved is if you give x amount of dollars to the church and just by being righteous alone is not enough. God's not going to... First of all... Is, the question is, why do you give money to a church? What is the church going to do with the money? I could, I could understand if a person said that your life is, is meaningless if you, don't, if you don't have time to be concerned about the poor or the underprivileged and you don't take time to help and to give and to do for people who are, who are, who are less lucky than you. Right, who are, who have so much less than you, 
who need help so much more than you that you don't go out of your way to do something for them. A person who doesn't care enough to help the, the underprivileged, I could see where that's a problem. But to give money to a church, I would like to know why should you give money to a church and why does a church need money? If, if the church represents the needy, mm-hmm. the, then, then it's not a question of the church, it's a question of the needy. If that's what the church represents, you, I you shouldn't be happy with yourself unless you give to the church. Uh-huh. But if the church just exists on its own terms as an institution, instead of a charity organization, instead of an, a humanitarian purpose... It must have been a greed thing. Either, there's, is either it serves a humanitarian purpose or not. Whether you call it a church or a school or a temple... Or, or you call it anything is irrelevant to me. Do you the only see thing religion? that matters is what is the purpose of the church. And if the church represents giving to the needy, then I say that it's terrible. And, it, and, you have a, and you're living a worthless life if you don't give money to it. But if the church represents just an organization or an institution, mm-hmm. and you don't know what it's doing or what it's for, then you got to be nuts to give money to the church. It's also, I Tell guess, because they were... what it's about before I give, ask me for money. There and, be, and nobody should ask me for money without telling me what the purpose is. And they're also saying... But you know, the great churches of the world always helped the needy and the poor. But and I think they were being I, manipulative about it. They were saying God's not going to let you into his club unless you give the money. And, well, I, I guess a lot of times they'll use God as, a, as just sort of a way to manipulate to me, to people. To me, the white God means, means holiness. And the holy life is what God represents. And the holy life without caring is no life at all. And if the church represents giving and caring and sharing and love for the for those who need it most, for the underprivileged and the suffering souls of the world, you should dedicate yourself at least part of your life to help those who need more, who need more than you what what you could what they could do for themselves. If they can do it for themselves, you should help and do it for them. Do and you- if you can't do it then you're living a worthless life. Were, were there times when you worked as a rabbi that you actually felt you did some good work as a rabbi that you enjoyed? I would say that as a rabbi, I, I always try to impart some kind of a useful thought, some kind of, a, of an idea that I thought would, would help make them a better person, that they could learn from it about some side of life and some interpretation about life that that would, uh, would teach some kind of a moral lesson or a spiritual lesson or, or some kind of a thought that would make them in some way a better person. Did you take any of that with you when you started doing comedy? No, not, not that I know of, but everything you experience, you, you do in your comedy. Your comedy is an accumulation of everything you've learned and experienced. Mm-hmm. Everything, you, everything that you've gone through in life becomes part of your comedy. Well, Martin Luther, the connection is that you left being a rabbi to pursue comedy. Martin Luther left the Catholic Church to start his own faith. Well, I can't pretend that the motivation of my comedy is to educate people. I can't pretend that I'm trying to teach them anything. But I'm not uh, pretending that I aim to, to teach. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not aiming to elevate people's thoughts and ideas. And, and, and uh, I'm not trying to see if I can make a better man out of you. I'm just trying to, to, to entertain you. So that's the big so, distinction. To see, right. <laughs> thanks, Jackie. Special thanks again to Danny LaBelle. 
And congratulations to Danny and Kylie. They just got married. Congratulations to you both. I'm your host for Music Live Radio, Dan Sauter, and we'll catch you next time.